It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And it's Tamara Cherry coming at you from Saskatchewan. Snowy, bitterly cold Saskatchewan. So for all of you in Ontario who are listening to this live, go ahead and cackle about your double-digit temperatures because we are in the negative double digits out here. Listen, we are in my household the big exciting thing of the day of the week, really, you know what, of the last like six months is the fact that my daughter's sixth birthday party is coming up this weekend. And my husband and I are just thinking, please just everybody stay healthy. We've got, we've got three kids. Everybody just stay healthy till the weekend. Everybody stay healthy till the weekend. We've, we've booked this unicorn princess to come for an hour. And I think it's non-refundable. And if one of the kids gets sick, then it all goes to hell in a handbasket. Well, Now there's all sorts of other things to worry about in terms of just, you know, not having a kid with the sniffles or coughing or whatever, because what is going on with our healthcare system? First, it was the children's fever medication. Here's a parent speaking two months ago. When going into like Shoppers Drug Mart or any grocery stores, trying to find Advil, trying to find Tylenol, shelves have been bare for weeks. Thankfully, we've had some, (laughs) uh, but we're running really low. Honestly, I have no idea what I would do. And as that problem persists, with some parents now considering a trip south of the border to stock up, now we have another problem. Pharmacies are struggling with a shortage of an antibiotic that is commonly used to treat chest, ear, and other infections. Amoxicillin is no stranger to our family. Here's Ontario pharmacist Kristen Watt. This one is quite concerning. When it was Tylenol and ibuprofen, I felt that we could manage. We were getting in little bits here and there, and then we suddenly noticed we weren't getting in any antibiotics whatsoever, realizing uh, the detriment that's going to be to kids' health. It became very concerning very quickly for us, and then we started to see other antibiotics become unavailable really fast. We just noticed this uh, late last week, and already multiple different antibiotics from different classes are no longer available, or at least not available at this time for us. So first we were hearing about emergency rooms filling up and shutting down. That was a big topic in the summer. Now the children's ICUs are filling up. Here's Ontario Medical Association President Dr. Rose Zacharias. We are in a system of crisis. Our healthcare system is overwhelmed after dealing with a global pandemic. We are dealing with doctor and nursing shortages. Our hospitals are in a state of overwhelm. Our emergency departments have closed one after the other over these last six months. And uh, and we know that uh, physicians are experiencing burnout. These are our healthcare providers that have been on the front lines 24-7. We do have solutions to implement at this time, and we are committed to working with government to see some positive change so that we can deliver as doctors the patient care that we know they need. On the East Coast, these problems are compounded by an aging population and an aging physician workforce. Here's Dr. Leisha Hawker, president of Doctors Nova Scotia. And we really need to strengthen our primary health care system in Nova Scotia. It's the foundation of our health care system, and it's one of the reasons why we're in such a crisis right now. You would think that by now that surely by now the provinces and the federal government would be working diligently together to find a solution. Instead, there's apparent squabbling over spending and a breakdown in talks between the federal health minister and pro- provincial health ministers that is happening this week in Vancouver. BC Health Minister Adrian Dix co-chaired the second day of talks yesterday 
He said the extraordinary effort by provincial partners and healthcare practitioners to address the difficulties of the day is not enough. We need support from our federal partners. And today we reiterated our call on Canada's pre- of, of the Canada's premiers, led uh, by Premier Horgan over much of the last year and now by pre- Premier Stephenson, for a, new, for a renewed healthcare funding partnership with the federal government delivered through the Canada Health Transfer. The degree of unanimity and support for this is demonstrated again today by our united and common approach to see a change in the Canada Health Transfer and an increase in the Canada Health Transfer such that we can meet the demands of the future. But a joint press conference between the provincial health ministers and the federal health minister was cancelled yesterday. Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos had this to say. Before the meeting was even over, before our discussions on these two essential items were even concluded, the premiers released a statement calling the meeting a failure. That is not exactly what we would call meaningful engagement. Right now, the federal government contributes about 22% of health care funding. The provinces want that to go up to 35%. Duclos seems to have arrived at the talks with cash in his pocket, prepared to increase the federal spending. But by how much? We don't know. However, this is all on the condition of the creation, apparently, of a national human resources program and data collection program. And therein, apparently, lies the impasse. Just partway through day two of talks, again, that was yesterday, Tuesday, Canada's premiers issued a statement saying no progress had been made. And Duclos backed out of the joint news conference and refused to sign a joint statement. Here was BC Health Minister Dix. We know, and you know, there are significant challenges facing the healthcare system right now. That this is going to be a difficult winter because we're going to see, and we've seen this in the southern hemisphere already, significant increases and challenges related to respiratory illnesses, including but not limited to COVID 19. And here was Duclos. Premiers keep insisting on money and the first minister's meeting. Once again, I will be very clear. Before we start talking about the means, we need to talk about the ends. So, again, you know, we're lucky in our family. Nobody is sick right now. Nobody has been seriously sick for about the last month and a half. Uh, At that time, we did have some children's Tylenol. I think that it is either out now or almost out. And as it so happens, I'll be heading south of the border next week on a pre-planned trip. And you know what? I plan on bringing some children's Tylenol, some children's Advil back in my bag. That actually may be the reason that I travel with a checked bag on a a very rare trip that I will be traveling with a checked baggage. Now, I don't know what a 35% Canada health transfer to the provinces would mean for getting those drugs on the shelves, for getting amoxicillin stocked up, the the amoxicillin powder that pharmacists need to uh, create amoxicillin mixtures for children, probably very little, but I would love to see our politicians showing solidarity during these times rather than this apparent bickering back and forth. We, the public, we, the patients are not concerned with the problems of the past. We're not concerned with the problems of the future. Right now, we are concerned with if our kids get sick with the common cold, will we be able to bring their fever down? 
If they get an ear infection, do we need to worry about that developing into something more serious because the medicine we've taken for granted for so long is suddenly unavailable? It's a frightening circumstance that many, many parents and children are faced with across the country today. Thankfully, I'm not one of them, and I hope that I don't become one of them, nor any of the plethora of children in my extended family. But again, it is every day my kids are coming home from daycare and school and saying such and such wasn't at school today. Apparently, they're sick. So it's it's just, as my sister called it the other day, it's the children's version of the pandemic happening now. And we would like to see all of our leaders talking you know, in, in solidarity. We, I want to hear your, your calls coming up on that one. one 1010 How are you feeling? Is politics getting in the way of good health policy, of, of practical measures to address the many, many crises that are facing our healthcare system? And of course, we've got lots of other things we're talking about today. Today is Wednesday. That means that we'll be having the war room. Today, we are going to be joined by Zane Belgi, Tom Mulcair, and Tim Powers, three of the greatest political analyst minds in the country to talk about all the big political news of the day. We're also going to be talking about COP27 and why the Canadian delegation at COP27, the big international climate conference, is ruffling some feathers because of uh, some of the representatives they have here have in Egypt from Canada. And finally, if all of this news just makes you want to swear, I can't because I'm on the air, but maybe you should because apparently that's good for our health. And I'll be telling you about that a little bit later with an interview uh, out of the University of England that I'm really looking forward to. I'm Tamara Cherry. This is News Talk Today. I look forward to taking your calls coming up after the break. Informed daily. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And I am your host for the day, Tamara Cherry. Looking forward to getting to some of your calls and texts. Give us a call, 1 855 633 1010. Do you think that politics are getting in the way of very badly needed healthcare help? In this country, one eight five five six three three ten ten, or you can text me at seven ten ten, and I am scrolling through the text board because oh boy, is that ever lighting up with this topic? Uh, first off, <laughs> before the break, I was saying that I would love to see some solidarity between the provincial governments and the federal government when it comes to you know telling us that they're they're getting along and and talking through these high, these various health crises that are facing our system and that they're working together but um anyway I said I wanted to mention solidarity and and somebody gave me an lol on that one said you mentioned solidarity within government ain't that an oxymoron true and especially when you consider the week that Ontario's uh provincial government has had but listen um I am frustrated I would like to see Action happening right now, tangible action that will mean that, you know what, somebody else pointing out on the text board that um, please tell me you're not calling a need for Tylenol in your family a serious illness situation. No, of course, it's not a serious illness situation right now. But if a kid gets a fever 
and you cannot get Tylenol, a very basic, basic medication that we can usually find on the shelves of any pharmacist or, or, you know, convenience store for that matter. And we, I can't get my kids, my kids fever down. Yeah. That can actually turn into a serious illness situation. And that is, I believe why a lot of the children's hospitals are completely overloaded right now. So give me a call. Tell me how you're feeling. 1-855-633-1010. Let's go to the phone lines. John, you're calling from Toronto. What are you thinking about all this stuff? Yeah, it was just a quick comment. Wondering, you were mentioning about uh, some of the antibiotics and the shortages that are upcoming and everything. Um, I'd, I'd be curious to know, has the government ever looked at the numbers of Americans who we hear all the time are coming north of the border to buy our cheap drugs? Is that having any influence on our shortages here? That's a very good question when I don't have the answer to John, but I yeah. mean, when it, when it, when it comes to Tylenol and ibuprofen, that sort of stuff, acetaminophen, I should say, and ibuprofen, uh, from what I understand, there's not a shortage of that in the United States. Um, is there a short supply of things like amoxicillin in the United States? I don't know. I, I I'm actually. I'm actually going to Google it and see if I can come up with a quick answer to that. And certainly if you have an answer, give us a call. Uh, you can give us a call at 1-855-633-1010. But John, do we still have, do we still have John on the line? Are you still there, John? Yeah. Okay. So how are you feeling though, when you, when you hear that these health ministers, the provincial health ministers and the federal health minister are seemingly at a stalemate, that their talks I, are breaking down yesterday? It, well, it's been bothering me for months and years. <laughs> <laughs> to be yeah. very honest, I just don't yeah. understand why they can't get their act together. Yeah, yeah, and it's worth pointing out. Thanks for your call, John. It's it okay. is absolutely worth pointing out that. Um, well, I said before the break, you know, we're not we're not concerned with the problems of the past or the problems of the future. We're concerned with the problems of now. Of course, we should acknowledge that the problems that we're facing now are largely because of problems that have historically not been addressed. Uh, physician shortages, yeah. nurses shortages, um, all of that stuff. You know, there are so many, when I said so many crises, there are so many things going on in our healthcare system right now with doctor and nurse uh, burnout, with people leaving the profession, with um, more kids than usual becoming sick and ending up in the ER, with a shortage of the pain and fever medication, with a shortage of the amoxicillin. Like people are going to the doctor and being told, you got to be, you got to be putting your kid on these antibiotics. And then parents are going to the pharmacy and and they're being told there, we don't have any. They're running around town. They can't find anything to help their kid. Let's go to Marie in Niagara. Marie, what are you feeling today? Well, I just came back from going over to the U.S. I live 15 minutes away and am able to use the Whirlpool Bridge. Okay. This is my third time going across, and I don't go right into Niagara Falls. I go a little further into Amherst. Mm-hmm. And each time I've been able to bring over 10 to 15 bottles of liquid Tylenol and or Advil. And what are you doing with all of that, Marie? That are, I have friends that are ER doctors at the Niagara Health System, mm-hmm. and they cannot get it for their own children. Wow. So are and you I'm are you bringing this stuff back, back so that you can give it to friends, family, to the, to the yes. hospitals? My what are you doing with all this stuff? My family doctor, I gave her six bottles, and I have another six to give to her. I'm not getting Mm -hmm. paid for it, just giving it so that she can administer it to her patients if they need it and to take home a dose. Mm, And my other friend, she, um, she has family that's in Florida, and they have mailed a box 
of eight bottles of children's Tylenol to them in Canada. Mm. I remember, people, I remember, I remember people kids. doing that with rapid tests when there was a shortage of rapid tests in Ontario. People from Saskatchewan, where I am, mailing rapid yeah. tests, tests out to friends and family in Ontario. Will well, you continue doing this, Marie? Pardon me? Will you continue your trips across the border to stock up? Well, absolutely. And why wouldn't I? Well, I, I wonder, Marie, when you go across the border, are there any signs in pharmacies asking you to limit you're purchasing no, of these no, things? No, but I was only in Niagara Falls, New York, uh, military road area. And okay. the Rite Aid and the Tops and the Walmart and the Target didn't have any. So that's why I go a little bit further inland. And then wow. they have them. So they're actually running out right on the immediate side of the border because yes, of, presumably because of all the Canadians to to going across to get it. Niagara Falls, New York, just close to the border, they're gone. Wow. Well, that's that's a good message for anybody right now who but might be driving across the 401 say, towards the border. I will also say that they will accept uh, prescriptions and they do a 90 day filling of an antibiotic for nine dollars and 90 cents or something at the Walmart. OK, so if well, so, really somebody need- somebody had just our previous caller had asked about whether there's an amoxicillin shortage in the United States as well. And no. I, I said that I was going to quickly try to look it up. And I did. And there is a shortage of amoxicillin uh, in the United States as well. Apparently, the Food and Drug Administration had warned about the shortage uh, recently and I, just this past Friday, I believe, and uh, that there's been, you know, a slew of, of shortages and yeah, they specifically called out amoxicillin oral solution, which is the problem that we're use uh, that we're seeing in Canada as well. Listen, Marie, thanks very much for your call. I want to get to David in Toronto. David, what are your thoughts today? Hi. So you had commented that uh, you received a text message that uh, are you really equating uh, the need for Tylenol with a serious illness? Yeah. And I, I would only question that in that if you or I have a fever and there's no Tylenol available, we can cope. We can make do. I have a 16-month-old daughter. She has a fever. She needs that Tylenol, serious illness, exactly. whatever you want to call it. She's yeah. in pain. She's miserable. It's very difficult to step, yeah. sit aside and say, well, this isn't a serious illness, so too bad. And not only that, she might be in pain, she might be uncomfortable, but it's also dangerous. If you've got, exactly. if your 16-month-old has a, a, a fever, like 40 degrees, 41 degrees, I've been hearing a lot of my friends reporting that from their kids, 42 degrees, a friend of mine uh, was recently reporting, you got to get that fever down. You, They say, I don't remember what it is, but it's a certain amount of time um, and you got to get it down. Do you, are, are you stocked up on fever medication, David? Ish, yeah. I need to replenish yeah, my stock, actually. Yes, yes. Well, don't plan on going to Niagara Falls, New York. Go a little bit further. All right. (laughs) David, David, thank you so much for your call. We're going to keep taking calls on this after the break just because uh, we're getting a lot of callers and a lot of textures coming in. I'm also going to share some uh, messages with you from Dr. Isaac Bogosh, of course, no stranger to this station uh, on, you know, some tips for you guys and and also some of his thoughts on what's happening between Health Canada and the provincial uh, health departments, ministries. Uh, so again, if you've got, if you'd like to share your thoughts on this, one 855 is politics getting in the way of practical solutions 
to our current healthcare crises, plural crises, 1-855-633-1010. I'm Tamara Cherry on News Talk Today. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Tamara Cherry filling or not not filling in. I mean, we're in a sort of an in-between place right now on News Talk today. I'm Tamara Cherry, your host, coming at you from Saskatchewan. And uh this show so far, we've been all about healthcare. I want to take some more calls. I know we have some people waiting on the line. 1-855-633-1010 or send me a text message at 71010. Um, my question was, do you think the politics are getting in the way of practical solutions to the various health, public health crises facing our systems right across Canada? You know, there's, there's some particular, you know, there's some unique problems in different parts of the country. For example, I was speaking earlier today about how the East Coast in Nova Scotia, they've got a more aging population than the rest of the country. Uh, and they also have an aging uh, doctor population, physician population. A lot of people over the age of 65 who are family doctors, presumably going to be retiring in the next year, uh, 10 years. But you know what? All across Canada, we're facing shortages of children's Tylenol and Advil. We are now facing shortages of very common antibiotic use for children, amoxicillin, for you know common things like chest infections, um, ear infections, that sort of thing. Um, and that's very, very concerning, not to mention the fact that the ERs have been overflowing for several, several months now, some of them shutting down, of course, over the summer and more recently, um, as well as now children's ICUs filling up because what would have usually been dealt with with Tylenol and, you know, common cold, that sort of thing. There's these res- respiratory infections now that are leading to fevers, that sort of thing that can't be brought down at home because there's this pain medication shortage. Excuse me while I take a sip of my tea so I don't start coughing. And and on and on. So first there was the shortage of children's cold and flu medications. Now we're hearing there's a growing shortage of children's antibiotics. I will get to your calls in a second, but first I'd like to hear from infectious disease expert, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, telling CTV News that both are critical for parents to be able to care for kids at home, keeping the pressure off the health system. The issue with the fever-abating medications is months long. We saw this issue in the summertime as well. I'm not going to be pretend to be a supply chain expert, but clearly we've known about this for a while, and there's looks like there's very little being done to curb this problem. Now, apparently Health Canada officials are meeting with drug companies on an almost daily basis, trying to get more drugs into the country. However, the concern is that even then, demand will far outstrip supply. We're seeing surging respiratory viruses like flu, RSV, and of course, COVID-19, among other respiratory viruses that are circulating. And now we have a shortage of fever-abating medications and a shortage of amoxicillin, which would help parents care for their kids in the comfort of their own home, which would relieve pressure from an already stretched healthcare system. 
Health Canada officials are meeting with drug companies on an almost daily basis, as I just mentioned. Bogosh says, though, that it's not an easy solution. This would go a long way to help the healthcare system get through what is expected to be a tough winter. You know, obviously, there's no silver bullets here. There's no one quick fix. But if you really wanted to take a major step to help alleviate pressure on your healthcare system, you'd at least give parents the tools to care for their kids in the comfort of their own home. I mean, let's get on it because we still have a long fall and winter ahead. And this problem isn't going away. Yeah, you know, I'm talking to you from Saskatchewan, where where we're buried under snow right now. So it feels like it's already winter. But exactly, we still have a lot of months of this cold season ahead of us. Let's go to the phone lines. Nick, you're calling from Toronto. What are your thoughts on this? All right. Um, my thoughts are, are, are national pharmacare. We've been talking about it for 20 years now because I remember 20 years ago, uh, the statistic was one in 10 Canadians didn't have adequate or any access to meds to treat their illnesses. Uh, today, it is one in four. So the problem has gotten worse. Um, and the crazy thing about all of this is that we can actually save upwards of $10 billion a year with a national pharmacare pro- uh, program. We have 13 healthcare systems in our country, and they're not working together. Um, and this is a big, big failure uh, when it comes uh, to leadership in our country, both the provincial and federal, because they need to get at the table to make this happen. We, uh, yeah, yeah. Why would you not do anything <laughs> if you could cover everyone, it's not being covered right now, and save $10 billion? It's a no-brainer. We've forfeited in the last 20 years, we've forfeited upwards of $100, $200 billion towards um, uh, overpriced meds and insurance companies rather than uh, putting it into our healthcare system and helping people. This is a failure. Nick, I I, I totally agree with you. I think we need pharmacare ASAP. (laughs) I don't think it would help us with our current situation in terms of why our ICUs, children's ICUs are filling up. Uh, why emergency rooms are filling up. I mean, it might to an extent. I absolutely agree we should, but I think that your point really points to the historical problems that have not been addressed and left us in in this mess. That that also includes, you know, not addressing physician and nursing burnout and all this, all sorts yes, of things I, that are leading to problems. Go ahead. We need. I, I, I think we need to realize, yeah, that this 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 situation right now is is a little bit different uh, than what I'm speaking about with with pharmacare, but. Uh, that has a lot to do with uh, supply chains and globalization. And, uh, you know, when, when, when we sign free trade agreements, we have to know that, you know, uh, if there are countries around the world that can do things cheaper than us, then we are going to lose our capacity to be able to do that. So that is a free trade issue. That is a globalization yeah. issue because we used to have the capacity to be able to do that. But, but since free trade and since we've shipped the old shipped overseas jobs to places where people do things cheaper than we do, uh, we've lost that capacity. So, you know, that, that's a big, big, uh, you know, it's not just happening in, in, in pharmaceuticals. It's happening mm-hmm. in every single industry. Where, yeah, but, where we've, we're but, we've really noticed, but we've really noticed it a lot in pharmaceuticals since the beginning of the pandemic yeah, when sure. we started talking about producing our own vaccines. Listen, I have to end it there, Nick, just because there's other people waiting okay. who I want to get to before Great. the break. But thank you very much for your call and your comments. Thanks. Let's go to Matt in Niagara. Matt, what are you feeling today? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say I feel really sorry for parents that have young kids. My kids mm-hmm. are a bit older, you know, 14 and 11, so they can... If they do get a fever, they can take a regular adult size Advil and probably be okay with it. Their, their bodies will allow them to do so. 
but you can't give that to you know a six-month-old, a year-old, a two-year-old. You need these these child doses. Um, none of this makes sense to me. We are living in Canada. We're not in a third world, fourth world, fifth world country right now. Um, you know, for 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 this to happen here, it is solely on the leaders of both the provincial and the federal governments. This is it's 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 actually scary. It's it's just making me realize that I'm not trying to sound like a conspiracy theorist in any way, but it's making you think that they're setting the table for potential dictatorship because what is happening here is they're controlling the food, they're controlling the gas, and now they're controlling medicine. It's disgusting. Conspiracy people who are saying conspiracy theories are never trying to sound like they're saying conspiracy theories, of course, but I, I I hear you. It is scary. I get how your thoughts could be going there. I don't think this is a part of some conspiracy. I don't think it's part of any dictatorship. I think it's maybe. part of perhaps pure, poor, poor planning and maybe not enough talking. I, I have to go to the next caller just because we're just about out of time. Adam and Aurora, you've got less than a minute. Hey, I'll tell you how I'm feeling, okay? So I have, a, I have a wart on my foot, and I've had it for almost a year now, and I had this one clinic where I was getting treated with liquid nitrogen. It's a stop going there because ever since uh, the summer ended, it started getting really busy, like three, four-hour waits. And this mm-hmm. tre- treatment takes like five minutes, right? So I, I went yeah. to the other clinics, same thing, waits are too long. I found one clinic in Aurora where, yeah, sure, they can take me, and I've been going there for a couple of treatments. And the last time I went there was packed, two, three-hour wait. And then they told me they don't have any more liquid nitrogen. They don't know when they're getting it. <sighs> so it's not only the medicine they, they can't get, it's other things too. So now I, I can't get treated for this. Oh, God. What what a pain. I'd say a pain yeah. in the butt, but it's a pain in the foot for you, Adam. I'm sorry to, to hear it. I have to a week for this, and I can't. <laughs> it's in, and then you'll probably away. have to start all over once they finally get it in. So I'm. Yeah, I, it's much. interesting, though, for you to... I have to end it there just because we're coming up against the break, but thanks for shining a light on the fact that it's not just these very, very important medicines. It's It's all sorts of things. Coming up after the break, we head to Washington. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Love me some alliteration. Staying on the story today with you is Tamara Cherry. And this is a story that I've been staying on. Oh my gosh, I can't stop. I can't stop with the S's. I have been staying on this story. I'm sorry. For many, many months now, I found it fascinating watching the midterm election uh, campaigning in the United States. And now, Today, we are finally getting some results. Adrian Morrow is a Washington correspondent for the Globe and Mail, and he joins us on the line right now. Adrian, thank you for taking the time. I'm a longtime reader, and I think this is the first time talker for me. Yeah, I think I think that might be. I mean, we, we both covered, uh, you know, did police reporting in Toronto at the same time. So I, I used to watch your yes. stuff all the time on uh, on CTV and then think, or even before that, reading you in the sun and thinking, you know, I got scooped Look again by you. Look at you. I'm here to be your fangirl, Adrian. This wasn't supposed to be the other way around. Remember, I worked at the sun. Thank you. All right. Okay, so Adrian, first off, how much sleep have you had? 
Uh, it's about two hours or so uh, between uh, leaving the office around you know two thirty and uh, getting up you know about five thirty this morning. Or oh 5:30 my gosh! This morning. So, yeah, so you the, being on the radio trying to put together coherent sentences must be like your favorite thing right now. We so appreciate you taking the time. Okay, so let's jump into it, Adrian. Um, you know, people were predicting as your story in the Globes opens today a red wave, a red tsunami, baby, it's a red kingdom. Are we seeing a red wave? I know we don't have all of the the answers yet in the the American midterms, but what are we seeing at this point? Yeah, it's closer to a, a red trickle or a red ripple than a, than a wave. Um, you know, there is an indication that the Republicans have made some gains, um, although even then, it's, you know, there haven't quite been enough races called yet to know for sure whether the Republicans are going to take control of the House of Representatives, uh, let alone the Senate. Um, but if they do, you know, it's going to be by relatively narrow margins. I mean, it might be by one seat in the Senate, um, by a handful of seats, you know, five seven, ten seats or so in the House. Um, so, yeah, certainly not the, the kind of, uh, you know, wave that, 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 that they were predicting. Um, you know, and, and we saw we saw sort of there were a few a few kind of races that, um, that that maybe stood out for the Republicans where you had, you know, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida winning by 20 points. Um, you know, J.D. Vance in, in Ohio won, uh, you know, won his race relatively relatively early in the night last night. Um, but by and large, you know, what you actually saw, what you mostly saw were these uh, these kind of uh, deadlocked races, you know, really kind of going down to the wire, um, a couple of which still haven't been called. It's uh, still not clear in Arizona, you know, which way that state's going to go. Uh, Nevada, that's still, you know, counting ballots there. Um, you know, so it really was a, um, yeah, it was a, a fairly, uh, has been a fairly tight contest in, in a lot of the sort of these kind of crucial seats. And there were other places where, you know, the Republicans probably could have, uh, you know, could have won if it had stronger candidates, uh, but didn't. You know, Pennsylvania was a, a Senate seat that they held. Um, um, and and if, and if they'd had a, a stronger candidate or a more moderate candidate, they might have been able to, um, you know, been able to hold on to that. Um, but instead, you know, they nominated a celebrity TV doctor uh, that, that was endorsed by Donald Trump, and, and he ended up losing by, I think, about four percentage points to the, the Democrats mm-hmm. there last night. Um, you know, same thing in New Hampshire, vulnerable Democratic incumbent, um, but the Republicans, uh, you know, nominated an election denier and, and lost there. Um, not to mention a few governors' races that, that they, you know, may have been in winnable states, um, but but where, um, you know, where the Democrats prevailed. So, yeah, so quite a, quite a lot of disappointment, I think, for the Republicans, and that this wasn't, you know, the, nearly the scope of victory they were hoping for. Uh, from what I understand, just in a lot of commentary leading up to today. Um, one of the big, big reasons that that we were predicting or we weren't, Adrian, you and I weren't, but people were Republicans were predicting this red wave, red tsunami is that there was uh, a feeling that, you know, the whole abortion issue, and that is, of course, uh, overturning of Roe versus Wade earlier this year was enough in the rearview mirror for people to not really be voting with that in mind. Instead, a lot of people in certain states were focused on crime, rising crime rates and community safety, that sort of thing that might be pushing them more towards the Republicans. From what you're seeing today, what what can we can what can we say about what was on people's minds when they went to the ballot boxes? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen a, enough exit polling to, to know for certain, but there are some kind of um, you know preliminary indications in some places. So you look at a state like Michigan, where abortion was was literally on the ballot in the sense that there was a referendum item basically to add abortion protections to the state constitution there. And you saw in Michigan, um, not only did uh, the, the governor there, uh, the incumbent Democratic governor Gretchen Whitmer, get reelected by a you know fairly comfortable margin, um, but they also won the other statewide uh, races, you know, Attorney General and, and Secretary of State, and the Democrats in Michigan. One uh, control of the 
state legislature for the first time in, in 40 years. Um, mm. and, and I think so. I think I think you can probably sort of anecdotally say, like, you know, there, there are other things were going on on the, the ground in Michigan. Uh, they've been there, you know, during the election. But but I think it's it's you know, you can sort of confidently say that in a state like that, abortion probably you know did make a difference. You know, that there mm. were probably voters. Who, you know, if you look at these midterm elections, turnout is usually down compared to a presidential. So there probably were you know voters who might not have voted otherwise, but for the fact that abortion was on the ballot. So they thought, okay, mm. I have to go out and vote for that to you know, get these abortion protections in place. And while I'm here, I, I might as well vote for you know, the, the rest of the Democratic ticket or two other people in the Democratic ticket. So I think there's at least some indication that that was, that was on people's minds, at least in some states like Michigan, where it really was sort of a front and center issue. Um, you know, other places, like talking to voters, I certainly did hear uh, concerns about inflation. A lot of people, um, you know, in, in the number of states I went to were, were angry about just how uh, expensive everything getting, you know, groceries, gas, um, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. For some people, uh, you know, election, um, you know, elections and democracy, you know, were an issue. Um, and that was kind of the, the same uh, on, on both sides of the political spectrum for completely different reasons. I mean, you had mm-hmm. uh, you know, some Republican voters I talked to who uh, still believe that, that the falsehood, that, that the 2020 election was stolen and felt that they needed to go vote in order to get, um, you know, more crackdowns on, on this, you know, supposed voter fraud mm-hmm. that's not actually happening. Other people I talked to, um, both uh, you know, Democratic voters and some independent voters in the middle who were just, um, you know, alarmed by all this election denialism and, and felt that they had mm. to go out and, and vote, you know, Democratic basically to push back against that. Um, yeah, and, and, that, and that's probably some- one of the most surprising things, too, is because the Republicans had a lot of people running throughout the country who were election deniers, like people running for government who are election deniers. And perhaps they thought that that would contribute to the red wave they were expecting. And and that sort of it seems to be a rebuke of of you know, the whole election denialism. And I wonder how it might uh, bode for President Donald Trump, who we're expecting to announce his candidacy or his running next week, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, again, we'll probably have to wait for, for more kind of detailed, um, you know, exit polling data to know, yeah, like to what extent, um, you know, the election denial, this was a rebuke of election denial, or, or were there places where it actually did motivate voters or, or what? But but certainly, yeah, kind of looking at the top line, the fact that there were some of these, um, you know, winnable races in, in different states for the Republicans that, that they lost, um, you know, when they were when they were running election denier candidates, you know, New Hampshire is a good example of that. Um, you know, it does make you think, that at least in some of these places, you know, there was a rebuke from, you know, maybe independent voters or maybe moderate Democrats, maybe moderate Republicans who basically mm-hmm. came out and, and voted against, or or maybe some Republican voters who just didn't feel motivated to go to the polls because they were uncomfortable with supporting an election denier, and that, that kind of gave the edge to the Democrats. Um, you know, yeah, certainly a bad night for Donald Trump. I mean, he basically um, intervened in a bunch of these different races around the country to try to get his preferred candidates, um, yeah. generally election deniers, generally people to the right of of um, you know of of, uh, of, of the, the Republican mainstream to to, you know, to become candidates, um, you know both of his chosen candidates lost in Pennsylvania. Um, there were some House races. There was a pretty competitive House race in um, in Michigan where you know he basically intervened to, to help the um, uh, an election denier primary the incumbent Republican who is a um, uh, a moderate guy who voted to impeach Trump. Um, that Trump candidate then lost in the general election last night. To a- Adrian, so- I've got I've got to end it there because we're coming up against the break. But I also want to be able to say you're far more coherent and intelligent than I am. And I've had like six or seven hours of sleep. So you go, you. Thanks for joining us. We're going to be ta- go talking about Washington some more coming up after the break with the war room.
This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You are listening to News Talk Today. I am your host, Tamara Cherry, coming at you from Saskatchewan. And it is Wednesday, and you know what that means. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out it's misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. And joining us today in the War Room, Zane Velji, political campaign strategist and partner at North Weather. He formerly worked with Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi and Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader. And of course, Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. Thank you all for joining us today. How's everyone Howdy. feeling? Hey, Tamara. Oh, great. Oh, no, nothing going on in politics. And any <laughs> nothing. Country. Not local, <laughs> not, nation, not provincial, not national, not internet, nothing at all. Okay, so let's just jump right into it. We spent a good chunk of the show uh, in the first hour of the show taking calls, talking to people about how they're feeling about the provinces uh, and the, the federal government. Their, their talks sort of falling apart on the uh, health funding front uh everybody seems to be pointing fingers at each other of course uh duclos saying that the premiers are telling uh their health ministers to not talk about anything but money and the health ministers are saying that duclos is walking away from the table who is to blame tom Mulcair? the feds are to blame for walking away from the deal that was made with the provinces 50 years ago it was a 50 50 split we set down in law and we agreed to basic principles for medicare universal free accessible transportable from one province to the other that was the deal and it, the 50 50 is now closer the fed the provinces will say 22 that's a bit of an exaggeration it's closer to 75 25 depending on who's doing the counting and how but for duclos and trudeau to walk into these meetings and say oh by the way we will tell you what type of data system you will have to hold on to your medical data oh, and we want you to follow our rulings on mental health. Now, mental health is a big issue for the average Canadian family. You know, we know the statistics. A lot of families realize we're short on care. And Mr. Trudeau is playing pure politics because he knows that Poiliev is going to side with the provinces and say, it's your jurisdiction. If I'm prime minister, I'm not, not sticking my nose in it. Trudeau is getting on a high horse that he knows will be very popular in certain big cities. Think the greater Toronto area and its 50 seats because there they're saying we need more money. The Doug Fords of this world won't get it. Yes, Trudeau, we'll give you whatever you want, but let's make a deal. And this is the split right now, Tamara. It is purely political. Zane, what do you think? Is it is it fair for the feds to come to the table with cash in their pocket, but but with some conditions on that cash? Tom and his facts and his history and his context. <laughs> what is he? What does he? What does he think this is? <laughs> He's definitely right. I mean, listen on the. It's it's almost a, a through line of of some of my thoughts today on the show, which is the macro versus the micro. On the macro, Tom is absolutely right. I mean, the feds are to blame. Historically, this split has not happened in a long time. They've politicized healthcare funding, especially this government, over the last half decade. If you could think about, you know, abortion rights, and I was it was in New Brunswick. You guys may have to remind me. Yeah, uh, kind of yeah. their dangling of healthcare funding in that regard. So, absolutely, they're not right on the numbers, and they're not right on the politicization. That being said, who is going to get the blame? 
if I'm kind of wading into that argument, I feel like Ducot's framing of the argument is kind of wise. It's almost uh, sideswiping to these health ministers provincially, uh, saying that, listen, they're feckless, they're ineffective, they're just puppets for their premiers. They, I wish these premiers would stand up and actually ask us what they need to. I think at the end of the day, if the provinces kept the argument going, kept the conversation going, they may shoulder less of the blame. But if all being said and done, I think most of this blame will go on the provinces for not taking the money and doing something with it. And you're already seeing some of that from from the nurses unions and the associations saying, guys, you have to take this money and do something with it. The feds have all the leverage here. They're not going to back down. So as it relates to the micro, let me get to my point. As it relates to the micro, I think this might be a bit of a victory. But at the end of the day, who loses as Canadians when we're across the country struggling for EMS access, emergency care and practitioners to help us with what ails us in our healthcare system. But on the comm side, I think at the end of the day, the feds might win this one in the micro, certainly losing to Tom's point in the macro. Tim Powers, where are you at on this issue? Well, I want to know if they found Dr. Perso yet. If I have to listen to that ad again from the provinces paging Dr. Perso, I'm glad you're making money off of it, Tamara. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, where's Dr. Perso? Come to work, will you, buddy? Uh, look, I, I think two, two things to add to what my colleague said. First of all, you don't have the deciders in the room, okay? No offense to health ministers, no offense to Mr. Duclos, but my colleagues well know if this deal is going to get done, it's the prime minister and the premiers, or at least the finance ministers. So both of them are engaging in theatrics right now around all of this. It's not going to happen until there's a tete-a-tete among the real players. Uh, secondarily, I don't think, picking up off something Zane said, I don't think the public gives a damn who they're going to blame. They just want to get it fixed. And the first leader or set of leaders that sees the opportunity to cut through the, you, it's your fault, no, it's my fault, and try and fix something might actually have some political advantage here. But they're so set in the tribalism of this game, both sides are, that they don't know how to break out of it. And that's not stopping waiting lines for it from increasing specialists from lacking the, opportun- lacking the opportunity for more specialists. So shame on them all. Have we found Dr. Perso yet? probably a couple more minutes for that listen yeah all they need to do is listen to the all the callers that were calling into our show we ended up taking it into two segments read the room politic politicians of of every level of government and just start talking and and show some solidarity on this which somebody told me is an oxymoron when when it comes to the government and that brings us to our next topic uh premier doug ford after threatening to legislate a contract and use the notwithstanding clause for education workers in ontario Ontario, he has backed down. Did he misread the room, Zane? I, I said I'd have the micro-macro split, and the micro, absolutely, he did. You know, listen, uh, I don't think he expected the public support for, for the workers. I don't think he expected their campaigning um, to, to, to work. I also think that there was a core mistake. Kids were not in the classroom. And so the mechanism in which he used or his education minister used the notwithstanding clause didn't necessarily work with the core objective that they were um, suggesting, which is kids have to remain in, in school. That being said, I think there is something here. We have to divorce the use of the notwithstanding clause with what happened to Doug Ford here, because the story is not yet over, because the 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 ping pong uh, sort of match is continuing, which is a I can see a scenario where the public being increasingly fickle 
might turn on QP if they don't accept the deal very quickly because mm-hmm. it is now even optically and whether it's strategic or not, it optically looks like I've been the gracious one. I've put down my sword. Will you put it down as well? And if QP, which I will, you know, uh, for full disclosure, I've worked with the unions in the past and continue to do so, but not in Ontario. If they don't necessarily figure out how they are going to structure a deal here, this is where uh, the public support can ping pong onto the other side of the table uh, back to the Ford government. I'd also add one final comment, which is while this this is a analysis of Ford misreading the room. I think we have to be very careful and divorce it from the notwithstanding clause because we still do not know whether Doug Ford is going to pay a price or not on using the notwithstanding clause. He may pay a price on misreading the politics and, and misreading this this uh, particular uh, uh, sort of issue, but we still don't know whether he's going to pay a price on the notwithstanding clause. Tim, we've got less than a minute. What are your thoughts? And then, Tom, we might get to you after the break. On <laughs> well, I, I just just picking up some, off something Zane said. Uh, yes, Doug Ford overreached. Our polling data from the weekend show that 62% of Ontarians were uh, with the union, but the union's got to be pretty careful right now. I hear a lot of triumphalism from the union now. Big victory for the union, the labor movement. The average public doesn't care about that right now. They do want to get these workers paid fairly, and they also want to make sure their kids are looked after. So dial it down, Union, if you want to get a real victory here. And never mind about who won or lost the day right now. There's more at stake. Tom, you got anything to say in 15 seconds? I think that Trudeau was smart to move in against Ford on the notwithstanding clause, getting back to that politics thing we mentioned. (laughs) There are a lot of people in cultural communities across the country who understand that in Quebec, Religious minorities are hard done by, the English minority is hard done by because Francois Legault has been using the notwithstanding clause to withdraw rights, and they've got their eye on Trudeau. They like him standing up and fighting for their rights. Trudeau was playing politics with it, and he was clever, but now he's got to explain to us in Quebec why he doesn't do it there. More of the war room after the break. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And we are continuing the War Room. I am Tamara Cherry, your host du jour. And joining me is Zane Velji, political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, and Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. Tim, I want to start with you on this next one. Are you following the midterms uh, going on south of the border? We still don't have a clear picture of exactly how things are are going to look when we come out with all the numbers. But it seems pretty obvious that the red wave that was being predicted by Republicans is not coming to fruition. Yeah, I'm watching it for a few reasons. One, and I'm glad to see so far that this um, hasn't materialized, you know, the the Trump effect. Uh, clearly, he's having a negative effect as opposed to a positive effect, or at least it appears so now. Some of his hand-picked um, unique candidates tomorrow to be charitable today have failed, okay. like Dr. Like Dr. Oz. Um, I'm also following Georgia because I used to think Herschel Walker was a pretty good football player, but I think that's he was. my assessment of he was. <laughs> yes, exactly. Of Herschel Walker and uh, what was astounding to me, I learned this stat today from David Hurley, somebody we all know. Apparently, Warnock, his opponent, is a, uh, is a Christian. Uh, but uh, Herschel apparently got 89% of 
Christian, self-identified Christian voters down there. Georgia is cracked. Don't elect Herschel. Let him run around with the football, keeping him away. And the other thing that's of interest to me is Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor who looks today probably to be the best-positioned Republican in the United States. And uh, I'm fascinated to see where he goes from here and how he tries to align himself with some of the people that got Donald Trump elected if he wants to get elected himself in the next uh, American general presidential election. Yeah, we were just talking about that off air before the last segment, Tom Mulcair, about the uh, the fact that DeSantis was 20 points ahead. Is this a sign that, you know, he could potentially beat Trump as the Republican nominee? Do you think that that matters in terms of whether we expect uh, uh, a running announcement from Trump next week? There is probably a very bizarre sigh of relief amongst some Republicans watching the fact that there is no red wave because it gives them the opportunity to think about candidates other than Donald Trump. Trump isn't a Republican any more than he was a Democrat when he was a Democrat. He's Trump. And by the way, if the Republicans ever do choose somebody else, including DeSantis, Trump's going to run on his own and probably have a pretty good chance of beating the, the Republican candidate. The person who gets a big high five from me is Michael Moore the documentary filmmaker, because you might recall that in 2016, he's one of the only voices on the progressive left who said, by the way, Donald Trump is going to beat Hillary Clinton. And everybody screamed at him. You can't say that. That's ridiculous. That's an outrage. Of course, she's going to win. He says, no, you're not talking to workers. I'm in Pennsylvania talking to workers. They're, they're peeved right now. They like this guy, Trump. They're they're rusting Ford F-150. They can't put gas in it. They find that life is lousy and Trump is talking to them and he's going to win. He was right. Two days ago, Michael Moore said, this this big red wave ain't going to happen. He says, I'm talking to people. They're upset with Trump. They don't think that he's the answer. They're going to be voting, staying with the Democrats. They're coming back to them. They think that the Democrats have got their back. So it was very interesting. I don't know what the final result's going to be, but I do know, of course, that it's going to be skullduggery and vote stealing. But other than that, we don't know what the result's going to be yet. But I think yeah. that with, with some luck for them, the Democrats will be able to hold on to the Senate. And the House is still a toss-up. Well, and and as one of Trump's, I think I, I assume one of Trump's favorites. Um, oh my gosh, her name is fl- is slipping my mind right now. But one of the candidates for for governor, who is the former Fox News reporter, who's now anti media. Yes, exactly. As she yeah. was saying, I will ex- I will I will win the election, and then I will accept the results. Well, will you accept the results if you don't win the election? I will win the election, and I will accept those results. So I'm sure we're <laughs> going to be hearing all sorts of that sort sort of rhetoric. Zane, where are you with the midterms? <laughs> So many storylines, aren't there? Uh, and let me pick mm-hmm. up on a, on a few that have been put down. I, I think on the Republican side, they're going to have their version of soul searching that the conservatives did here in Canada. And this is going to be a bit different because as both Tim and Tom have mentioned, Trumpism as an ideology seems to be an asset. Trump himself seems to be yeah. a liability. So how do they ultimately figure out whether it's a DeSantis or a more moderate approach, what the future of their party is? The second big issue on the Republican side right now is that while it looks like they're going to be taking the House under Kevin McCarthy's leadership as the new speaker, it is not going to be that 40 plus seat majority. In fact, it looks like it might be razor thin in the single digits. What that ultimately means is folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's Mm -hmm. redefined what alt-right means in the United States, will have disproportionate and significant leverage on Kevin McCarthy. We could see a ungovernable House under McCarthy's leadership for the Republicans. Combine that with their soul-searching 
thing. Combine that with Trump himself trying to get in the mix, um, uh, perhaps as early as next week. The Republicans have their own drama going on. The oh. Democrats also have an interesting conversation. This is a historically net positive performance, regardless of where the marginal seats and they're important. I shouldn't say marginal in terms of importance, but wherever they land in the next couple of days, Joe Biden outperformed. So what does that mean for Joe Biden in terms of his prospects in 2024? Will he run again? Does the wind behind his back? And what does this mean on all the Democrats who bought in to the fact that the cost of living inflation economy argument was going to tank them, that they had no standing on it, mm-hmm. and that abortion and democracy and decency was a poor approach? It seems like they may have been right with that approach. So they're going to have their own version of, of reconciling, and it might spit out a different result in terms of who's on the ballot on the presidential ticket in 2024. But these are just some of the storylines I'm picking up on uh, from from yesterday. And Tamara, how about yeah. I just tell you, the, the, the guy who used to sit in the chair you're in today, he put out a really interesting tweet, Evan tweeting in his new role, $16.7 billion spent in these elections, <laughs> as Evan wow. nicely pointed out. And more than real, the real dollars. Of real dollars. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. correct. And, and, and if we're talking about money, can I just yeah, add I mean, on to this point? Democracy? If, it's nuts. It's nuts. Yeah. Well, Tim, if you want a show, the show's going to start perhaps in the next couple of days. If we go into a runoff in Georgia, they've got yeah. this strange rule that the Senate candidate needs a 50% um, threshold plus one. All money, all attention, all time, all resources are going to be thrown into Georgia. You're going to see a sickening amount of money. You're going to see a underlining of the American political system happen in the next four weeks in Georgia, should we be headed to a a runoff there, to decide the future of the Senate. It's it's wild, though. It's wild. Yeah, but don't is. forget that the last time the Democrats managed to hold on in Georgia, and that's that's something that really helped uh, Biden. Uh, but speaking of soul searching that we you were just mentioning a minute ago there, Zane, Tom, there's something I want to ask you about. Quebec yes. Liberal leader uh, Dominique Anglade stepping down, resigning, perhaps not the surprise of the century. But what do you think that this says about where the, the provincial Liberal Party in Quebec is is going to be looking now? What direction they're going to be going in? What sort of soul searching is happening there? They did a real crash and burn around Anglade. She managed to hold on to official opposition status. The steamroller of Francois Legault pushed everything aside. She did relatively well. Of course, they're entitled. They're used to winning, so the skullduggery started right away. There were lots of schemes and putches and attempts against her. And then she finally just, you know, I talked to her last week. I said, any chance of you quitting? And she goes, I I have no intention of quitting. I said, okay, you haven't answered if you're talking about your intention. She goes, well, I've learned to never say never in politics. And she just talked to her family on the weekend. She's got three great kids and a husband. Mm -hmm. She and her husband were very successful in business. She's an MBA. She's an engineer. And by the way, she's the first woman to ever head the the Quebec Liberals and the first person of a visible minority. She's a black Mm -hmm. woman, Haitian origin. Her parents are both incredible people who died in the Haitian earthquake because they were back there helping. Mm. And uh, they were both political refugees. Her dad had been put in jail by the Duvalier regime. So she's got great personal story to tell. And the Quebec Liberals are in a death spiral right now after having done this to her. So many people are walking away from so many members of visible minorities are saying, you were always talking such a good game that you were close to us. Hasta la vista. We'll see you some other time. Kind of reminds me of Ontario politics of of years past with what happened with the Mm -hmm. Ontario Liberals. Listen, guys, it has been a slice. Thank you very much for joining us in the Take care, tomorrow. Great to be with you. Zane Valji, Tom Mulcair, Tim Powers. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. 
I didn't know when when Evan left if the war room would continue. And one of the first things I asked on Monday um, when I was filling in then was, does does the war room continue on Wednesdays? Because it is truly one of the segments that I most look forward to. Coming up after the break, we are heading to Egypt. And why part of the Canadian delegation at COP27 is ruffling some feathers. I'm Tamara Cherry. What's happening right now? This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And I'm going to try to get to some of your thoughts on this one in just a moment. My name is Tamara Cherry. I am your host for News Talk Today today. It's been a great show. Thanks for listening. Uh, Listen, the Canadian delegate, well, there is a Canadian delegation for the first time, from what I understand, at COP27. That's happening in Egypt right now this week. Thousands of people have gathered from around the world and something at the Canadian delegations, I guess they have some sort of setup there. Uh, what do you call it? I don't know, something where they're they're handing out they're handing out flyers and stuff and and showing what sort of work is going on in Canada as people gather for the 27th uh you know, COP27 to talk about climate change and all things environment. And something is ruffling the feathers of people. And I wonder whether you think that this is an appropriate ruffling of the feathers or if people are getting upset needlessly. And that is that in the Canadian delegation, there are representatives from the oil sands industry. This has been attracting, perhaps not surprisingly, some intense criticism from environmentalists that the oil sands industry would have a seat at the table at such a such a significant international gathering. What do you think about this? 1-855-633-1010, or you can send me a text message at 71010. Again, 1-855-633-1010. Do you think that the oil sands industry should have a seat at the table at this? Listen, there was uh, an environmentalist named Sapora Berman, who is actually at COP27 in Egypt. She's the International Program Director for Standot Earth and Chair of Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Sephora Berman put out a, a Twitter thread yesterday calling out the Canadian government for, for bringing the oil and gas sector to the table at this. She says, so embarrassing, Canada Pavilion COP27 planning event to showcase oil sands companies. Canada's lobby record shows oil and gas companies had 11,000 meetings with government in seven years. That's roughly six meetings every workday. Guess it worked. She goes on to say, I spent four years meeting with oil sands companies trying to reach agreement on climate policy. They lied about supporting carbon pricing and demand reduction. They undermined weakened methane regulations. They haven't come through on a decade of promises for dry tailings or CCS. She continues, Canada is shoveling billions of tax dollars, taxpayer dollars to these companies for their failed promises while they make record profits and gas prices spike for the rest of us. They promised to decarbonize oil, but they warn that uh, that CCS is unproven and risks increasing fossil fuels. Do you think that the oil sands should have uh, a seat at the Canadian delegation at COP27? We are going to speak with 
the the author of this thread in just one second. Before we do, I just want to ask Erwin in Montreal. Erwin, what are you thinking? Hello? Do we have Erwin? Yeah, hello? Hi, Erwin. Really quick, really quick, because I want to get to Sephora, but do you think yeah, the oil no, sands uh, have seat at this it table? Say, it should say that they're there. Uh, these guys are causing the problem. Tar sands need to be shut down. Uh, it's dirty oil. Uh, from production to its use and refining, uh, that the Canadian government allows it to be there is—it's not shocking. It's just disastrous. Yeah, I, I would have to agree that it doesn't seem like a good look. But I, I am interested to hear more from Sephora Berman, as I mentioned just a moment ago. She is at COP27 in uh, in Egypt right now. She's the Inter- international program director of Stand Earth. She's on the line now. Sephora, I understand it's what eight thirty. At night in Egypt right now? It is. Hello. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, I want to hear what your impressions are on the conference overall. But first, what 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 do you know about why the oil sands are on, uh, Canadian oil sands are on display at this international climate conference? Look, I, I think the bottom line is that these are companies that have incredible political power and influence. And, and they have built a lot of influence and built a lot of friendships. You know, there's one study that looks at how many times they've lobbied over the past seven years. And and they've had 11,000 meetings with our federal government officials. That's six a day for every business day. So they have incredibly close relationships. And they're they're trying to prove and and to to, uh, encourage uh, further support for the industry by saying that they're going to reduce emissions through carbon capture and storage. And everybody likes that argument because then we can have our cake and eat it too. But the fact is billions of dollars have gone into carbon capture and storage. They haven't delivered. They haven't delivered for the last 10 years. And we're in the climate emergency now. We're living the fires and the floods. So I I think they're here to try and, um, you know, put a greenwash on the industry. I think the Canadian government is hosting, I know the Canadian government is hosting them. A number of oil executives that I saw and met today are wearing pink badges. So they are part of the Canadian government's formal delegation here at COP. And, you know, honestly, I just think it's, it's, it's crazy because these are companies that are not going to design their own demise. And we know that we need to move away from fossil fuels. We know that we need to decline emissions and production. That's what the science say. That's what our former environment minister, Catherine McKenna, said today, yesterday, when she, as a UN advisor, released the criteria for net zero. And and she said, look, you are not net zero and you're not a climate leader if you're expanding fossil fuel production. And and I think that was a really fascinating moment for Canadians. You know, what what do you what do you think of the argument being waged by uh, some federal and provincial officials who say that Canada cannot meet its climate goals without significant input from the oil sands industry? That's absurd. I mean, the oil sands industry should clean up its act. That's absolutely true. And and they should be regulated so that they're cleaning up the influence of the oil industry on our land and, and, and on our water and that they're reducing emissions. That's true. They don't need to be at the negotiating table that is supposed to be managing their decline to do that. And and the the, the fact is they should be regulated and we should clean up existing operations. 
And we have to come to terms with the fact that we cannot allow increased production at this moment in history. That's what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says. That's what the IEA's report on how we, how we try to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming says. And, and they are they're trying to convince people that they can reduce pollution enough that they can continue production because this is the last gasp of the fossil mm-hmm. fuel industry. But what Canadians need to know is we don't need them anymore. Renewable energy is cheaper. It's available at scale. And we can electrify. And, and that, that is, that's in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports that our government has signed off on. The experts have clearly laid out how we can move away from fossil fuels. So having the oil industry here is just holding us back and weakening climate policy. Do you, do you think that part of it might be because of the increased talks about our oil sands, given uh, the energy crisis going on in Europe right now with the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Or or is this, do you think they would have been there regardless? Because as you say, the 11,000 meetings that they've had with the government in seven years. Um, no, I, I think in part that they have, um, that they definitely recreated a conversation about expanding fossil fuels on the back of the Ukraine war. And they've been incredibly successful in doing that. We know that, right? The oil and gas industry spends millions and millions of dollars on its public relations campaigns and its communications Mm -hmm. campaigns. The first bombs hadn't even fallen in Ukraine before they were out there arguing that Russia's invasion of Ukraine required that we need more fossil fuels. But I think we need to step back and, and, and think about it for a minute. Should we really be doubling down on the industry that got us here in the first place, that is leaving us with polluted rivers and, and billions in liabilities from uncapped wells and, uh, and, and the climate crisis? I mean, these issues are complicated, and what's being negotiated here in Egypt is complicated. So what's not complicated is that the majority of the emissions trapped in our atmosphere that are causing the floods and the fires and the storms come from three things, oil, gas, and coal. And today Zipporah, we have Zipporah Berman, I've got to end it there just because you can hear the music. We're coming up against the break. Thank you very much for taking the time. Sephora is a Canadian environmentalist and writer in Egypt at COP27 now. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. My name is Tamara Cherry. I am your host today for News Talk Today, but regular listeners will know that for many, many years before that, I was a journalist in Toronto. Not just any journalist, a crime reporter. So we are dealing with bad stuff all the time. And let me tell you, I developed quite the potty mouth. I think no, just, like, mother- <laughs> that's that's me when my voice was a little bit deeper than it is today. Thank you very much for that, Chris. Um, I developed a bit of a potty mouth and it wasn't something I took pride in, but it was really part of the culture and it probably still is in, in many journalism circles. Well, wasn't I delighted when I saw this story yesterday while browsing various news sites? A study out of England says that it might actually be Good for you to swear. Dr. Richard Stevens is a psychologist and lecturer at Keele University in England, and he joins us now. Dr. Stevens, I'm just going to point out first, I thank you for joining us, but we are live. 
So we're not going to be able to bleep anything today. So let's just try to keep it clean, even though we're talking about anything but today. Understood, Tamara. How are you doing? <laughs> doing well, thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm good, thanks. I'm all right. Okay, so Dr. Stevens, um, one of the things that came to mind for me today was reading through, you know, some of the some of the findings in your study, in particular, how swearing helps us cope with pain is when I was giving birth to my third child, no pain meds. And as I was, as the doctor told me it was time to push, I said, let's get this little mother effer out of me. And he glared at me and I have carried mom guilt for so long that I would say that about my darling child. But now I'm kind of feeling okay with it. Should I be okay with saying that during during such a an important time in my child's life? I mean, him being born? Uh, I think you should absolutely feel okay with that. And in fact, it was a similar experience um, that I had when, when my daughter was born. Um, but in, our, in, in the case of my wife and I, um, so as the contractions were coming on, my wife was swearing because it was painful. And as they eased, she was a little bit embarrassed to have done that in front of the medical staff. And a midwife said, don't worry, love, it's a completely normal part of giving birth. We hear this every day. So I uh, don't feel guilty at all. It, it helps. Okay. So were you studying uh, the benefits or thereof of swearing at that point in your life? No, that was kind of, that was one of the sort of, uh, you know, things that made, that, that sort of formed the idea of, I wonder, you know, I wonder why people swear when they're in pain. Does it help? Does it not help? Um, was the kind of questions that I had. And then, so between my students and myself uh, at Keele University here, we thought, well, let's let's put it to the test. That's that's what we do. We do we do experiments. We try to do good science and find things out objectively. So, so that's what we did. Um, we used. So, how did you do that? How, how what sort yeah. of trials are you running to make people swear and to get the results from that? What were you doing? Yeah, so we we had to figure out something to to try and transfer that situation into the lab and make it as you know simple and as objective as possible. So um, there's a nice way of doing pain studies, which is to get people to immerse their hands in ice cold water because while it is it's not harmful to do that, but it is kind of mildly painful. So that so we had people put their hands in ice cold water, repeat a swear word of their own choice. And we compared that, and we see how long the hand stays in the water for before it has to be taken out because it's too painful. And we compare swear word with a repeating uh, a non-swear word and, and just look at the times. And that was the basic science, very simple science. And people usually keep their hands in longer when they're repeating a swear word. Was there a particular, again, we can't say it on air, but was there a particular swear word that you've you found has been helpful for people getting through painful situations? I think maybe like your example you started with, the, the stronger the swear word, the better the effect, I think, is, mm -hmm. is the rule. Uh, but we let people choose their own and, you know, they just choose the, the ones that your, your listeners will imagine they chose. Nothing kind of weird or strange. Is is there a difference in the delivery of the swear word? Because, I mean, we know that there's people who are casual swearers who are just dropping F-bombs left, right and centre. And then there's there's people who don't swear that often. Will it be more helpful for somebody in a painful situation to get through that situation with swear words if they don't usually swear, or is it just as therapeutic for the regular foul mouth? Yeah, we did. We ran a follow-up study, actually, and uh, we asked people to try and estimate how many times they swear a day. And when we kind of combined that data with the experiment, the interesting thing we found was the people that swear the most in everyday life got the least benefit from swearing in the pain experiment, which suggests 
if you overdo it, it stops being special or whatever and just becomes words and sounds. Hmm. I wonder, how old is your daughter? She's 18 now, actually. <laughs> oh, she's 18. Okay. So so as she was growing up, I, I guess, I don't, I don't know how old she was when you started looking at this stuff, but what would you say to a child? Like we, we talk to our, our kids right now are four, six and eight years old, and we're trying to get them into mindfulness and, and, you know, using their words, but not swear words and, and, and not turning to violence when they're angry at each other. Should I be guiding my children maybe towards some, maybe not actual swear words, but words that might be bad for them in times of stress to get them through those stressful moments? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose that's the upshot of the research is yes, but, but, you know, swearing is a very complicated and nuanced thing, isn't it? And, you know, I mean, we all, we all grow up and we all learn the rules about swearing and we know when it's okay to swear, when it's not okay to swear, those kind of in-between situations when it may be okay to swear and we might give it a try. So, you know, as long, as long as you teach them all that stuff as well, then there are some situations where it, it, it's, I say it's swearing is a, is a um, let me see what I say. It's a <clears throat> calorie neutral, um, uh, uh, drug free means of self help. So why not give it a try? Self help. I love that. Okay, I wanted to ask you about one other thing. I know you did your own uh, study, but also part of your research was reviewing 100 academic papers from different disciplines about the consequences of cussing. And from what I understand, you found several studies that have highlighted the social benefits of swearing. What What is the social power that comes from, from swearing? Um, so uh, there's a few studies that suggest swearing can make you more persuasive. Um, and the thinking here is that someone who's swearing it's speaking in an unfiltered way, so they're being kind of upfront and know this is the real me, swear words and all. Um, so there is some, there are some studies that suggest that. However, um, it does depend on how the person is already perceived. Because if you, if somebody who you perceive to be an opponent, like for example a political opponent, uh, swears, it gives you a reason to dislike them even more. So it kind of it's complicated. Mm. But it can even if you're a swearer yourself. Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah, because you know it's it's uh, people don't need much reason, do they, to to find fault in other people? So yeah, I don't, I don't think it makes much difference if you're a swearer yourself. Very very interesting stuff. I I hate to say that we have to end it there, but Dr. Richard Stevens, we got through that that whole segment about swearing without swearing once. So thank you very much. It's been an absolute freaking pleasure to have you on. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for Have a wonderful evening. Dr. Richard Stevens is a psychologist and lecturer at Keele University in England, and he has been studying the the effects of swearing and how it can actually be, as he said, drug-free self-care for us. So I might just get out of end this show right now and and scream into the abyss um i don't know an f word or something no i probably won't but maybe when i step my toe in a few minutes i will thank you very much for listening guys i've been your host today i was here on monday news talk today and i will be here on friday for free for all friday thank you tony very busy on the phone lines today uh thank you andy for producing this show and of course thanks chris our technical producer thanks for listening